Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I'm joined by assistant editors Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder to talk about the race for the governorship. We conducted a poll on the race for governor, and those results were unveiled at our Indie Fest event recently. So we talked about the frontrunners for the Republican primary for governor, some other contenders who might jump into the race, and how current Governor Steve Sisolak fared in our poll. After that, reporter Jackie Valley joins us to talk about her story examining reverse migration. While the prevailing narrative is that Nevada is growing, Jackie talked to many people who are leaving the state, whether it's for financial reasons, environmental factors, or something else. At the end of the show, I interviewed Janice and Bill Oberding. Janice is an author who has written more than 30 books about the haunted places around the state. She has some ghost stories to share and gives spooktacular recommendations for haunted destinations around the state. I am here with assistant editors Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendell's soon-to-be married couple <laughs> um, talking about the governor's race, specifically the Republican primary for governor. There's a lot of people in the race already, and we've done some polling that was put out through IndieFest, our big event. So let's just start with the numbers. Who has said that they're going to be running for governor in the Republican Party so far against current governor Steve Sisolak? So there's been a pretty crowded number of candidates getting into the Republican primary for governor. The big caveat to all this is that candidate filing doesn't open until March. So when people announce, that doesn't really mean that they're running. They have to actually file for that in March. But the biggest candidates to announce so far are former U.S. Senator Dean Heller and Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Both Republicans, both are the top two uh, vote getters in the poll that we released this Sunday. Heller, I think, is around 31%, and Lombardo's in the 20s. Other people running include Reno attorney Joey Gilbert. He's at about 11%. North Las Vegas Mayor John Lee, who only had 2 or 3% in the poll that we did. And then a handful of other candidates who all received like very little uh, support in the poll. And when we're talking about the the primary, is it expected that we're going to see more candidates come out or is this kind of going to be the race right now? Definitely anything is possible. I think that a lot of people are looking at Sisolak as a vulnerable candidate. He's had to be the executive that has made a lot of difficult and unpopular decisions from the mask mandate to the shutdown of casinos to all this kind of thing. So you can tell through our poll that the folks that were making these difficult decisions or are in power right now are currently basically they're underwater in their poll numbers. They're more unpopular than they are popular. So a lot of Republicans are seeing this as an opportunity. It's always like this. Two years after a new president, the other party in power tends to gain a lot in that midterm election because people are just a little disenchanted with the candidate that just won the presidency. So Republicans are definitely seeing this as an opportunity. Some other candidates that may jump in include Mark Amaday. He's been hinting that he's looking at the race. One of his considerations is that if he stays in Congress and is reelected, he could potentially be part of a majority 
in the House, because right now Democrats control the House, um, he could be in the party in power, which is just way better than being the party out of power when it comes to Congress. So he's weighing that, but he's a Carson City guy. In fact, Riley and I saw him mowing his lawn one day. (laughs) So he loves this place. And, you know, just like Dean Heller, I think uh, these guys would much rather be living in Nevada in their hometown than commuting to D.C. all the time. Amade has been a representative in northern Nevada for a pretty long time now, right? Yeah, since 2011, he beat Kate Marshall in a special election. Kate Marshall was the former lieutenant governor who resigned recently. It's all very circular. But yeah, so he's coming up on a decade in the House, and he's sort of floated different potential runs for office. I think it is hard for him because the second congressional district, which he represents, is such a safe Republican seat. He can be there kind of for as long as he wants. But Obviously, if he jumps in, that'll kickstart a whole other competitive Republican primary of folks who want to probably run for that congressional seat if it opens up. Another thing is that Amaday gave some interviews in the most recent week and said something like, none of the candidates that are in the Republican primary so far have knocked my socks off, essentially. And, you know, if you say you don't like Sisolak's policy with COVID, you better have a good alternative plan and not just leave it at that and say, I would have done things better, which I think, you know, is a strong point. You know, a lot of people can criticize decisions that were made in the early stage of COVID and don't have to make that same decision and can say what they want about how that all went down. Going from Amade, who is a pretty prominent possible candidate to a a pretty prominent candidate that's already said that they're going to run, which is Dean Heller, someone who was uh, a representative in Washington, D.C. for us for a long time, had a bit of an interesting relationship with President Trump at the time of his election and then obviously lost the election. So where are we looking at with Heller right now? It's very interesting with Heller because in the 2016 election, he wasn't up, but he was on this sort of uh, wishy-washy. I think he said like he's 100 percent against Hillary Clinton and 95 percent against Trump, which are comments that have come back to kind of bite him. But in his 2018 re-election race, he totally embraced Trump. He campaigned with him. He told the president everything he touches turns to gold and kind of fully got aboard the Trump train. So we can see in the poll, and you can look on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, that Republican voters do have an overall favorable opinion of Dean Heller. So I think the interesting thing will be how much the Joe Lombardo campaign tries to paint Heller as a opponent of Trump. A lot of Republican primary voters, the overwhelming majority, view Donald Trump very favorably. So it is kind of like a loyalty test. The other thing that I'll be watching is that This primary, in a lot of ways, will serve as kind of like a test case on what issue animates Republican primary voters more. The Lombardo campaign is already running ads with footage of Heller at a town hall in 2017 saying that he supports Planned Parenthood. Heller's tried to kind of pre-butt this by saying he supports the Texas abortion law that came out recently and promised to sign the most conservative abortion laws in the state of elected governor. But that's sort of what I think the Lombardo team sees as his big weakness. And on the flip side, Heller has already gone after Lombardo for uh, being soft on gun issues. Lombardo was not opposed to a universal background check initiative that was on the ballot in 2016 and doesn't necessarily hew to kind of the NRA pro Second Amendment firearm line that many Republican candidates take. Those are just past statements he's made as a sheriff. And I think the Heller campaign thinks that's kind of their ticket to sort of ding him and make him lose favor with Republican primary voters. So it's kind of like these two competing issues to see which one is going to get Republican primary voters more interested. Is it abortion or is it firearms? Candidates that are still 
possibly in the running, but are much lesser. We have Joey Gilbert and John Lee. John Lee was a former Democrat and mayor of North Las Vegas. Joey Gilbert, an outspoken attorney up here in Reno. Tell me a little bit about them. We're not writing Joey Gilbert off, and I think that was uh, apparent in our poll analysis during the IndyFest conference, that Joey Gilbert is a firebrand populist type of candidate. He's filed a lot of lawsuits against mask mandates and trying to get approval for use of hydroxychloroquine, which is the drug that Trump was touting as kind of a miracle cure for COVID and was otherwise just generally untested on that purpose. So he's been touring around the rurals. He's been headlining a lot of events, really pretty unknown at this point, but he's he's known in certain circles. He's also still one of the most ardent questioners of the results of the 2020 election. He was in Washington, D.C. on the day of the riot. We believe he did not go into the building. But, you know, just like Donald Trump, I think you can't write off some of these candidates that have a real firebrand populist appeal, because sometimes you just don't know. And these Republican primary voters do not want the conventional buttoned up, polished type of candidates. And they want someone who's just going live on Facebook and really speaking off the cuff. John Lee, I think, is going to face some more challenges. John Lee served in the legislature for a very long time as a Democrat and is now trying to make this pivot. He got into the race early, but a lot of what you're seeing in terms of reaction is questioning that transition and how authentic that truly is. You know, he can now spout off the lines of being a pro-Trump guy, but we've got these other guys in the race. Is that really going to resonate with Republican primary voters or are they always going to view him with a little bit of suspicion? And when we're talking about the race too, how were all of these candidates stacking up against current Governor Steve Sisolak? Based on the polling we did, and we just did head-to-heads with Lombardo and Heller, and just kind of to echo what Michelle said, I don't think we should write off any of these candidates. We call Heller and Lombardo the front runners, but combined, they're like at 50% of the electorate, so the other half is supporting another candidate or is still undecided. So lots can change, all those caveats, but Lombardo does a little bit better against Sisolak in a head-to-head matchup. Both results were within the poll's margin of error, which just means that like it's very possible either could win if there was an election today. But Lombardo, I think, attracts a little bit more of the moderate independence as opposed to Heller, who's sort of been defined, especially by Democrats, as like very close to Trump, even with all the questioning Trump statements from 2016. But I think at this point, Lombardo is doing better against Sisolak, at least in a head-to-head matchup as compared to Heller. And what we're seeing is the Democrats seem to be targeting Lombardo right now in an effort to try to knock him out of the race at this point, because they believe and our pollster indicated that Lombardo appears to be the stronger general election candidate. Even if Heller is currently ahead among these GOP primary voters, they think Heller's easier to beat. Heller's got a long rap sheet of votes in Congress and the Senate. Uh, he's, he's been in Nevada political history for upwards of 30 years. So he's got a lot that they could use as ammunition. Lombardo hasn't really weighed in as much. He hasn't made a lot of these policy decisions because he's been sheriff for so long. So we see a, a concerted attempt to really try to derail Lombardo before he could get into a general election. And then, and then lastly, I just want to ask, are there any Democrat candidates that are, are challenging Steve Sislak at the moment? Because there is kind of this somewhat of a reckoning internal politics wise in the Democratic Party here in Nevada. 
Um, people are going to file the run against Sisolak, but there are no serious challengers at this point. And when we say serious, it just means people who are able to raise a lot of money or actively campaign. You know, in addition to all the Republican candidates we've talked about, many others will file, but they're just not going to be able to run kind of the full campaigns and raise the amount of money to make them viable candidates. I think Democrats generally across the state don't want to have like kind of an inter-party warfare before going into what's likely to be a very tough competitive midterm election for their top of the ticket candidates. So I really don't think there's going to be any serious primary challengers to Sisolak. But again, it's October before an election year. So lots of things can change between now and the primary in June. And you're already seeing Sisolak sending out frequent email blasts, frequent text blasts, trying to create in his official capacity a variety of weeks like infrastructure week and Nevada jobs week and really getting out uh, in his official capacity into the the community and really trying to be seen so I think you're you're seeing definitely a very active effort from him to try to get out there and try to boost his numbers after the the real hit that his popularity took during the early and current stages of COVID all right well thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast Thanks so much, Joey. Yeah, thanks, Joey. All right, and so I am here with our reporter, Jackie Valley. Jackie, how's it going? Nice to be here, Joey. I'm doing well. Yeah, good. So you recently reported on a story on people choosing to leave the state, leave Nevada, move away. And I think that's a really interesting thing because a lot of what's been in the news, a lot of, lot of the prevailing narrative has been that Nevada is growing. It's growing very quickly. A lot of people are moving here. But with people moving here also means that there's a lot of change. And I think that that sometimes is hard for people to deal with. Also, with the growth comes the cost associated with that, right? It usually becomes more expensive in larger, more densely populated areas. And so with that in mind... Tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, so it was interesting. It's it's essentially the counter narrative. We know that Nevada, based on the recent census data, is the fifth fastest growing state in the nation, or at least was during the past decade. So I think the question is like, will that continue going forward? And, and, and if so, to what extent? The pandemic obviously drastically altered people's lives. And um, I think it's causing a lot of reflection and decision-making that maybe wasn't there pre-pandemic, at least in a sense of urgency. And so I decided to take a look at, okay, there have been a lot of changes in people's lives, a lot of disruptions. So what does that mean for people now? Like, are they wanting to stay here or are they wanting to leave? We've obviously seen housing and rental prices skyrocket over the past 18 months. Unemployment's still relatively high. All these different factors added on top of like cultural considerations, maybe inclination to get back closer to family, et cetera. And so it was interesting to me because it really was rather easy to find people who said, yeah, like I already moved or I'm moving soon. And their reasons ranged from everything I just stated. Several said it was affordability. A nurse, she was a telephone triage nurse making good income, about $65,000 a year in Las Vegas, but her rent was going up significantly by like a thousand dollars for this two bedroom apartment she'd been in for 13 years. And so she just looked at it and said, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get a comparable place at a better rate right now. And so she up and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. She's hoping to return, hoping that the prices come down and can be more affordable. Another couple in Reno, they're younger, but they also both have college degrees and still felt like they couldn't get ahead because rents were rising faster than their wages. And so they are moving to DC where one of them got a job offer. The way they framed it, 
they'd be paying similar rents in Reno. And so this was an opportunity to have an adventure and try something different, you know, and then there were uh, a couple of folks who were concerned about the environment. Uh, we've had wildfires, we have an ongoing drought. So there were some water concerns and health concerns related to all of that. So it's like a lot of different reasons, but it was really interesting talking to everyone because they had this time to reflect and realized for a variety of reasons that it just wasn't working for them. One, one of the first things that you mentioned about people leaving was rent prices, right? And also, I mean, housing prices to a broader sense, which is something that everybody listening to this, I'm sure has to deal with either rent or their mortgage or even looking for a home to buy. How have those prices increased and changed how people are financially handling living here? Yeah, well, I mean, if you just look at rents alone, they're up 19% in the Las Vegas area, 17% in Reno. So that, that's double digit growth. And then on the, the housing side, the median existing price for single family home in Las Vegas is now above 400000 It's It was 405000 in August. And in Reno, it's even higher. It's beyond the half a million mark. So I think people are feeling squeezed. They just don't see how they're going to get ahead or make these life changes that they want, knowing where prices are. And another concern that you mentioned uh, towards the end of, of talking about everyone that was looking at leaving was the environment and kind of the concerns there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this uh, one woman, she and her partner lived in the Anthem Country Club area of Henderson. It's a really beautiful um, uh, upscale area. They'd lived there for quite a while. She has health concerns. She has this condition where her lung capacity is compromised. And so for her, the air quality is a big concern. And she said that normally from their backyard, they could see the strip. There was a view, but now it's hazy. There's wildfire smoke. It's just, it's not great. There's some days she doesn't want to leave the house, but she's also a big conservationist and is really concerned about the environment. Her quote was, you know, I keep seeing more and more people moving here, more condos and traffic. And yet I see Lake Mead going down, down, down. And in her mind, it just didn't add up. And so they're moving to, well, they have two houses. One is near Myrtle Beach on the Carolina coast and another is in Florida. So yeah, they'll, they'll be moving to like the threat of hurricanes, but they, they decided that was the trade-off that was going to be worth it. And that's something that's interesting too, is a couple of weeks ago, you and I worked on the 200th episode of the podcast where we talked to a bunch of people about what it means to be a Nevada. And I think it was a really positive look and what it creates identity and place and the people that are here in Nevada. But there are a lot of people that are feeling disenfranchised here and need to leave for one reason or another. The thing that I got from your story was that a lot of people were seemed sad to leave. It doesn't seem like they, they want to leave if they think they feel forced out. Is that a sense you got? Yeah, I think definitely for half of them, that's probably the case. Like it wasn't their intention or their plan originally to leave, but it was like one thing piled on top of another that just became too much to bear. So I think in terms of like the identity and talking about population trends, it'll be interesting to see what happens long term because obviously there's still a lot of people moving here. We know that there's tons of people coming from California and other places as well. So it could just end up being a shift in the makeup of the population, more people moving in, other people moving out. So not like we'll necessarily lose population. It'll change the makeup of the state with who lives here. Yeah. And, and with people coming into, I, I think part of that is you hear about how expensive it is to live in California. A lot of people in Nevada are always like, well, I hope Nevada doesn't become California. And there are, there are parts of the nation that are, that are cheaper. Look, look in the Midwest and, and areas like that. As someone from the Midwest, Jack, you have a very strong connection to Ohio. Is this something that you've noticed as well, especially talking to family is like kind of the cost of living in, in the Midwest and, and, and other places that aren't necessarily the, the coastal regions? Yeah, it's certainly 
cheaper there in some respects, but I'll tell you that I have a cousin who's moving back to Cleveland after living in Tennessee for a few years and rents and housing prices are also way up there now, like compared to Las Vegas, they may be lower, but they're seeing similar percentage increases. So, I mean, this is something that's happening across the country in different places too. So I think the movement story isn't specific to Nevada. It's playing out in different realms. All right, Jackie. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. All right. Thank you. This week, to kick off October, I figured we would get into some uh, spooky ghost stories. And uh, one person that has a lot of ghost stories is Janice Oberding. She's an author here in Reno and uh, writes about all kinds of haunted places around the state. So I sat down with her at a coffee shop this week to talk about some of her stories and uh, asked her for some recommendations on places to check out. This is going to be two parts. We're going to have another part uh, later on in the month before Halloween, talking more about her writing process and, and looking into some more ghost stories. But this one is focused on some spooky stories she's experienced on her time writing about ghosts in Nevada. She's also joined by her husband, Bill, who is the photographer for all of her books. I'm Janice Oberding. I'm a writer. I've lived in Nevada most of my life. I research the paranormal. Some people might say a ghost hunter, and I'm a historian, and I love true crime. My name is Bill Oberding. I'm Janice's husband, and I do the photography. I get to travel with her now that I'm retired, so we go all over the country, and we have a lot of fun. When I was a kid, my grandmother told my sister and I a lot of ghost stories and also I've always loved to read about ghosts and history because I believe they're connected and I looked one day and thought there's no books on ghosts at all here none on Nevada's ghosts so I'm going to write one is there anything unique about Nevada in terms of the ghost stories that are here compared to the ghost stories that are maybe in the south or anywhere else in the United States Well, they're not as old. Our ghost stories aren't nearly as old. Some in the south and in the eastern states go back 200, 300 years, and ours are newer, like maybe maybe 150 years. So that's one unique thing, and I think ours are more colorful. What about the most, like, significant or or maybe the most scary ghost experience you've ever had? I'm assuming you've had several (laughs) writing all the books. (laughs) I think I could say that in broad daylight... I had my ankle grabbed in the Goldfair Hotel. That, that happened and because some friends of mine were doing a seance upstairs and they said, oh, it's a little boy and they were rolling the ball and the ball was coming back and, the, and I got the feeling that is not a little boy. That is something not very nice and I don't want to be here. So I went downstairs to get a Coke and I got it out of the cooler and I stood up something, grabbed my ankle and I said, I know you're not a little boy. Like you said, Nevada has a lot younger ghost stories. Do you have any other ghost stories that really stick out to you, either here in Reno or in Las Vegas? One of my favorites is um, Liberace in uh, Las Vegas, and I'll tell you the story on that one. Just before they closed up his house, that Shirley Street house, I was visiting my mom. And I asked her to drive me over there because lucky, even though these people did not want to hear about ghosts, they were going to give me a tour of Liberace's house. And I was going to see his closet and his bathroom, and I was going to see it all. And I thought, that would be really cool. My mom said, okay, I will drive you, and I'll go in with you. 
but if his ghost appears, she, I'm leaving and you're going to have to walk home. So I'm in there looking around thinking, oh, please, if you're going to appear, Liberace, please, in front of me, not my mom. So we get ready to go and I go into the foyer and it's a beautiful, like, marble, marble. And my mom is staring at the ceiling and I say, what is wrong? She said, I was standing here and blue water started coming down from the ceiling and I'm stepping around so I won't step on it. And I looked up and paintings of Liberace in blue tones are all over the ceiling. (laughs) So I guess he was being kind to us. It was so wonderful to just to be able to see that. And I believe that he didn't want to scare my mom, but by the same token, he wanted to say, hey, I am here. Why do you think it's important to tell these stories? What is it to preserve history? Or I think it is. I think it's to preserve history, to get an interest. You know, a lot of people come to Nevada, especially Virginia City, for the ghost, just for the ghost. And I think that's good for tourism. And then I think it's good for people maybe to explore. Is it possible that there are ghosts? I mean, even if you're uh, anti-totally, it's good for people to, something to think about. When a lot of people think of ghosts, right, they think of like poltergeist, right? Like like someone trying to hurt you or scare you. Do you think that this is more of a positive experience, just someone trying to reach out to you? No, I think it's very positive. And I think if you, people say, oh, well, what if it, some ghost grabs me? What if it's negative? I don't pay any attention to that negative. I just say, okay, I know you're there, and I know you're negative, and I just don't want to be involved with you because you should look at the positive. What about Reno or Vegas? What are some of your favorite ones, let's say, in northern Nevada in Reno? One that I think is very interesting is the one downtown, the New Bridge, Ortiz, Luis Ortiz. Yeah, he was hanged on the bridge. You want to tell that story? You know that story. Basically, what happened was, this is back in 1892, and Luis Ortiz was a a farm worker, and he would come to Reno, you know, every month or whatever, just to get away, but he liked to drink. So he'd drink, and he'd get all crazy and drunk, and he'd be firing his gun off in the air. Well, the sheriff told him, okay, you have to leave. You can't come back. And they banished him from downtown Reno. But about a month later, he came back again. And he did the same thing. He got drunk and he's firing off the gun. And the constable went up there and uh, said, okay, you're going to have to leave. We're going to arrest you. And he was firing his gun. And, and the gun went off and shot the constable. And so they took him down to the jail. They arrested him and they put him in jail. And the constable, they took him to the doctors to patch him up, find out what's going on. The next day, somebody made an announcement and said, the constable is in grave condition. He will not make it. He's not going to survive the day. So took Luis Ortiz and uh, took him down to the bridge and was going to hang him on the bridge. And they put a rope around his neck and pulled him into the next world, okay? Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for the constable, about a week later, he made a full recovery. He did not die. So they hung him for a crime that he really didn't commit. I mean, not murder anyway. And so they say he haunts the bridge because of that reason. Do you think that, like like you said, a lot of this is history, right? I think that's a huge anchor to all of ghost stories is the historical aspect of it. Do you think that it's not given the time of day, you know, just the general public or, or anything? 
Yes, I do. I think there's a lot of haunted places that nobody can get into anymore because now certain organizations own them and somebody in that organization is dead set no pun intended against ghosts and ghost hunters the casinos do not want to hear about the ghost at all they will they do not want to hear about it they do not want to talk to you about it there's so many buildings that they've just knocked down destroyed and it went away it's hard i mean when you wrote the las vegas book since then, you had to update it, remember, because there were so many places, uh, like Carluccio's and all those places that are, are no, that are gone now. So I think a lot of people will use their own personal thoughts and feelings rather than say, well, okay, like you, a reporter, Joey, maybe I'm not really that interested in it, but maybe my listeners or readers might be. I think a, a lot of people don't do that. If people are going to, like, go find some haunted places around. Like you said, it's kind of hard to access some of these places, right? What are some easily accessible places around the state that people can check out? You're right. And, and that's a shame that some of these places, they're outrageous and if they'll even let people in. It's really hard to get in a lot of places. The park downtown where the Believe sign is, that they said Marilyn Monroe haunted, but I don't think it's Marilyn Monroe necessarily. In 1962, the Golden Hotel, which is kind of catty-cornered from there, burned down, and only one person was killed in that fire, a woman named Carol May, and she happened to be a blonde showgirl. And I believe that she's the one that wandered over there after she died. That's what I think. So out there, you could go over by the Lake Mansion, and right across the street, you can't go in the places, but I don't think the ghosts are trapped indoors necessarily. All right, that was Janice and Bill Oberding, two ghost hunters up here in northern Nevada. Janice has a event on the 30th of October at the National Automobile Museum. Um, that's going to be a seance, and it sounds like a lot of fun. So if you want to check that out, make sure to look that up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, Jackie Valley, Janice Oberding, and Bill Oberding for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank Jackie again, who not only helped us edit this very podcast, but also helped edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more. Jackie is stepping in and helping with the podcast while our normal editors are on their honeymoon. If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, pet duck brushing techniques, alternative flower pot designs, or whatever else you can think of at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.